All right, so 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Let me read through this passage. It's familiar. But as for you, continue in what, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, Timothy, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here's the main point this morning. All of Christ for all of life. That's our, that's our church's motto. That is when I, when I formulated that or copied it. Um, it's not, a, it's not a direct copy. By the way, nothing I come up with is original. Um, but, uh, but it's not a direct copy, but you know, it's got our own little twist on it, all of Christ for all of life. What that means, at least in some sense, is all of the Bible for all of life, because the Bible is Christ's word, right? So all of the Bible for all of life. And in particularly, what I meant to say was all of the Bible for counseling, for politics, for finance, for parenting, for education, for welding, for dentistry, for therapy, for everything. That the scriptures lay the foundation for everything that you do on planet earth. And the scriptures lay the foundation for everything that we do collectively. And that Acadiana does. And that the United States of America does. All of the scriptures for the whole man, for the whole town, for the whole church, for the whole nation, for the whole world. So that's unpacked what I, what I mean. And now all of you, like I said earlier, the choir has finally arrived. Um, you've heard this so many times and I can see it on your faces that you're frustrated with me. Um, and so, but I got to say it again. And, uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to spread this good news far and wide and bring everybody else in Christ Church on board with this. <clears throat> Now, you would probably maybe say, well, Brandon, I think you're tilting at windmills here. There's nobody who says that we shouldn't look at all of the Bible for all of life. Everyone agrees. Well, that's simply not true. Everyone does not agree. And even those people who do agree verbally don't quite understand that the way they're living demonstrates that they don't believe. I mean, how do you know what you believe? Not by what you say, but why what, but what you do, Right? So, to put a finer point on this, every word of the Old Testament stands for us today, all of us on planet Earth, unless the New Testament says otherwise. And there is nothing in the Old Testament that the New Testament says is no longer. There are some things in the Old Testament that the New Testament says blossom and take on new form, but nothing, not one jot or tittle, will pass away. Make sense? So just as a quick example, the sacrifice of Passover lambs. Did that cease uh, when Jesus was born? It did not cease. It did not cease. Jesus is the Passover lamb who is slain. And every single Sunday, we don't sacrifice a lamb. We remember and we pay homage to 
homage to the sacrificed lamb. So that law in the Old Testament does not come to a dead end when Jesus Christ is born. It comes to a stage of blossoming. It blossoms. It doesn't become null and void. It takes on new form, new shape. Make sense? We could do this with every single jot and tittle of the Old Testament. It takes on new form in the New Testament, if it does, um, and does not pass away. What does Jesus say very clearly? Not one jot or tittle will pass away. What does he say? I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it, to bring it to its fulfillment. You say, well, what does it mean to fulfill the law? It does not mean to abolish it. Whatever it means, it does not mean to abolish it. And I think this is necessary to point out because I think this is in many people in our church's hearts. Um, surprise, I teach things because I know y'all. Um, if you want a pastor who doesn't preach specifically to you, um, there's plenty on the internet. And they will give you good sermons, great sermons, but they don't know you. A shepherd knows you. And so a shepherd tailors his messages for his congregation. Right? Duh? Obviously? Yes, exactly. And I know that many of us um, do not quite understand how all this works out. Many of us, in fact, resist it. And so that's why we're talking about it even more this morning. And I also know this because you're born in America. And it's the air we breathe. To resist things which are taught in the Old Testament by default, just by default, all right? So let me restate my thesis one more time. Every jot and tittle of the Old Testament stands unless the New Testament says otherwise. And even in the New Testament, you will see that things are not canceled out. They do not come to a dead end. They blossom and are fulfilled and take on new form. So do you see that? Everyone see that? That's our, what's called our hermeneutic principle. And it is the, it's the first principles of, um, of biblical teaching and preaching. You know, normally when a pastor preaches or teaches, he doesn't reveal his first principles. Normally, I should say, they don't know their first principles. Um, and then if they do know them, they might not reveal them. Like a mom, a wise mom, obviously, who's trying to make a healthy dinner for her toddler, she knows he's not going to eat straight kale. You got to blend that up. You got to put that in the meal and don't let him know it so that he can eat it and receive it almost as if he's receiving it passively. And that is exactly what every teacher does. In fact, you, every single one of us more than likely, except maybe... Well, almost every single, probably every single one of us received blended up kale in your preaching for the entirety of your life. And it was this, this is the blended up kale, that nothing remains from the Old Testament except that which the New Testament restates. That's the kale you've been dining on and you didn't know it. And I'm like big brother here to say mom's done put some kale in the meal. Right? This is exactly right. So one of these two things is right. They cannot both be right. 
And they do go in different directions. It is like the intercontinental divide. Right? If water falls on the right side of the intercontinental divide, it makes it to the Gulf. If it falls on the left side of the intercontinental divide, it makes it to wherever. I don't know. Where does water go over there? The Pacific, eventually. So I, uh, I've gone through this particular journey in my own life. It's a hermeneutical journey. It's a deconstruction of assumptions and presuppositions that is hard to even recognize very hard to even recognize. Um, when I was a, a young man, and even a Bible teacher, I remember the, um, the superintendent at Westminster quoted this passage, and I don't have it, but she said, if my people would call out my name, I would hear their cry and I would heal their land. And I thought, Old Testament, that's for the Jews. I thought that, that doesn't work today. That's not true. Just like that. Now, had a pastor ever taught me the hermeneutics that got me there? Not openly, right? Had I ever sat down and say, Pastor, uh, would you go ahead and lay out all the arguments for me on why you think that? So that I can go through all these arguments systematically and thoughtfully, eat each one individually, intentionally. No, it was just in there. It was pureed, gobble, 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 my whole childhood. That's just what, and then when I heard it stated, I was like, no, that's for the Jews. That's for the Jews. I remember I even told, I even told my parents, <laughs> lost my pack. I even told my parents that, you know, things are going great over there, but boy, oh boy, they keep quoting the Old Testament scriptures, right? Bring the, st- the tithes into the storehouse. I remember I heard a sermon by that. Nope. Old Testament. <laughs> Obey the law that you might live long in the, in the land and prosper. Old Testament. Even though Paul mentions it for the children of the church in Ephesians chapter 6. I didn't know my Bible that well. I was too arrogant to study it. Or at least too immature. The promises are for you and your children. Old Testament. That's another one I just balked at. Not because I sat down and really went through bite by bite, and really came to understand that nothing passes into the new unless the new restates it. I never was taught that intentionally, and I never believed it intentionally. It was what you call a presupposition, right? So you can imagine how long it took and how difficult it was to deconstruct a presupposition and come to understand a different presupposition, which is everything passes from the Old Testament unless the New Testament says otherwise. I do believe that makes more sense. I don't believe that at the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew was some thing that took place that ends the Old Testament. It's all the Bible. And so look once again at this passage. If you want a proof text, it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, who's he speaking to? Timothy. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred writings. What books of the Bible did Timothy have when he was an infant? Which is what that word means here, infant. He had the Old Testament exclusively. Exclusively. That's right. Paul wants him to continue in it. Paul wants to, him to learn it. 
And Paul wants him to remain acquainted with those particular writings. So there it is in grammatical proof text style, if you'd like it. Timothy, clearly a New Testament saint, is being instructed to continue in the Old Testament very clearly. And we, of course, would agree with that. And most people would agree with it, you know, on a general blended up way. But I'm trying to give you the first principles here specifically. What I believe Paul is saying is, among other things, we continue in the passages of the Old Testament. Of course, reading it through the blossoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what is revealed in the New Testament. All right, good. So, pastor, is this really important? Yes, this is an intercontinental divide. Right? Ideas have consequences. Creeds create cultures. And if you have the creed, the Old Testament is out, unless the New Testament restates it, that will create a different culture. And in fact, I think that is what has created modern-day Christianity, modern-day American evangelicalism, is that hermeneutic, right? Creeds create culture. It's inevitable, right? <clears throat> the, the hermeneutic, all things from the Old Testament continue unless they take on new form in the New Testament, or unless the New Testament says otherwise, is a creed. It's a hermeneutical creed. Y'all know the word hermeneutics? You know, it's biblical interpretation. It is a creed that creates an alternate culture. So that's difficult, you know, it's difficult. As a Bible teacher, I can be at peace with people across town that hold to a different hermeneutic than me. But I can't be at peace with their hermeneutic. Do you understand the difference? Like, I can't, I can't be rational. I can't, be a, I can't speak English sentences from the Bible without going on one side of this intercontinental divide. It really is. It really does have an impact on every single interpretation of every single verse of the Bible. It really does. It's a big issue. And so, while I, I want super, I want more than anything for me and anyone else to be at peace with all the saints, you know, um, the teaching is going to be different and it's going to become manifestly more different as you work your way through the whole Bible, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, and it manifests the culture that that creed produces. Right. So let's get in more specifically to our text. Look at um, verse 16. <clears throat> all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, what does all mean here? It means all the Old Testament. That's what it means, because he's talking to Timothy about what he learned in, the, in the, uh, his childhood. But does it, does it mean the New Testament? It does. All Scripture. So that's just simply put, all Scripture. Um, the first century church, they wrestled with whether or not they should obey the, first, the New Testament. That was the whole debate. You know? Is there a New Testament? And uh, today, we're wrestling with whether or not we should obey the Old Testament, or how to obey the Old Testament, perhaps. Right? Um, but all Scripture is, um, is inspired and God-breathed. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. Here's a proof text for you. For the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. Where does the Bible say that? Deuteronomy. By the way, that is a case law from the book of Deuteronomy. And it is being quoted by Paul in the New Testament 
for Timothy and for um, all the churches to practice. Churches practicing case laws from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. All of the scriptures for all of life. Right? But notice the next one right here. The laborer deserves his wages. Who said that? Not Moses. Not David. Luke. Luke said that. That's right. And I do believe Luke is a prophet and, uh, and wrote scripture. Of course, we're getting into other hermeneutical principles at that point, but that's Luke. So when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, the scripture says, and he quotes Luke. So they knew that Luke's writings were prophetic, that they were inspired, that they were authoritative. See that? All right. So they, and this is my hermeneutical grid, but they saw Luke as the same way they, their ancestors saw Jeremiah. Okay? Good, good. Peter says that Paul's writing is scripture. So we have the, the testimony of Peter pointing to Paul and saying the writings of Paul are scripture. Right? So these are just, and there's others, there's tons of other proof texts. But the Bible is very clear, clear in the grammar. This is not like a theological deduction, okay? It's clear in the grammar that the Old Testament and the New Testament are Scripture. All of it is Scripture. The idea that the church later at the Council of Nicaea got together and, you know, threw darts on a dartboard to pick what, which ones were in and which ones were out is a fabricated, is fabricated propaganda, Gospel of Thomas, out. Gospel of Mary, out. Gospel of Barnabas, out. Luke, you're in. You know, that's fabricated propaganda. It's not true at all. As soon as the prophets wrote, as soon as the apostles wrote, it was received as canon. Right? And they had that canon all the way up into Nicaea. Nicaea was simply uh, formalizing it, recognizing it, um, working to compile it, and uh, it was not creating it or initiating it. Make sense? Yeah? Yeah? So look, so now let's apply that. If all of Scripture is God-breathed and God cannot lie, so Scripture does not lie, Scripture does not err, then what is your ultimate source of authority for all of life? It must be Scripture. Okay? And I want you to be what's called epistemologically self-conscious to this fact. It's a big word. Anybody want to spell it for us? (laughs) Epistemology is the study of how you know, how you come, and how you are certain with the things that you know. Right? And I want you to be certain about the things that are revealed in the Scripture. I want your, your, your faith to be grounded in the Scripture. Ultimately, and nothing else ultimately, okay? Now, of course, we, we believe what our mamas tell us, right? Or what grandpappy tells us, generally. But we're not ultimately. You see what I mean? I'm talking about what do you ultimately hold to? You know, we might believe what a politician tells us, or we might believe what a pastor tells us. You know, and generally, we should be open, especially to those people who God has placed in our particular hierarchies within the institutions that we live in, family, church, state. We generally want to be open, to that, because that's how God works in this world very often. But ultimately, it's the Bible and the Bible alone. Okay? Tradition, we want to be open to tradition. Tradition is good. We want to follow good traditions, but not ultimately. 
We want to be reasonable. We want to reason. We want things to make sense as much as we can, but that is not ultimately what we trust in. Make sense? So when a, when a Muslim questions you, how can God be three and one? What would you say? Bible. Bible, yeah, scripture. Because scripture is God-breathed, right? Now, what is the Muslim's epistemology? He may not be aware of it, but when he asks that question and he's appealing to your reason and your rationale, what is his ultimate faith in? In his rationale. Islam is a rationalistic religion that flows out of Greco philosophy, which are all rationalistic religions. When someone in a typical Southern Baptist church or whatever church in America says, how can God choose someone before the foundations of the world? That's not fair. What is their epistemological basis? What is their foundation? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. You have to realize, no, you are not determining ultimate truth. You are not even discovering ultimate truth. Ultimate truth has been revealed to you, and you receive it in faith, period. It is not irrational, but your ration is not going to come to it alone. You see what I'm saying? It comes down from God revealed. It doesn't get discovered by man from from underneath. And that's tough. You don't, your parents, some of them, not all of them, obviously, but some of them, your friends, um, people in this church, in this town, in this world, do sometimes have a rationalistic epistemology, but they're not aware of that. They're not consciously aware of that. And it can be very difficult to convince them of scripture when they're actually, in their mind, they're actually holding to tradition or what makes sense to them. And you got to do your best in love to deconstruct that and to get them to land back on Scripture. And anyone who has been born in this soil has been through this journey. Because you're born a rationalist. You're born a humanist. right? You're born a traditionalist. You're not born trusting in the ultimate revelation of God in the Scriptures. That's something that comes only by grace through faith. Make sense? Of course, if you teach your kids that when they're little, when they are old, they will not depart from it. And when they're little, they don't really question you, do they? They don't have a problem with Jonah and the whale. You're the one with the problem with Jonah and the whale. (laughs) So look, if the the Bible says animals go on the ark two by two, then that is the truth. If it says that Job was swallowed by a fish, then he was swallowed by a fish. Now, you have to be sure you're interpreting everything literarily, right? You have to be able to read. This goes without saying. Well, it used to, but... And it says God created the universe in six days and rested in one, then that settles it, right? This is how you have to think, and this is how you have to live. If it says there were dragons in Job's days, then there were dragons in Job's day, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and forget being respectable. Forget it. You can't be respectable and faithful at the same time at least not in this world, reject sophistication and have childlike faith. I think this is the best way to live. And if you have a little skeptic in your heart, listen, your kids will too. 
promise you. If you sow seeds of doubt in your family, your kids will have doubt. If you have ultimate certainty in what people in white lab coats say, instead of what the Bible says, your kids will be confused. They will hold fast to the doctrines of this age. You want to trust your doctor who doesn't. I'm a little suspicious of what the screen is telling him, right? Because he's over there in the screen a lot. And I'm not sure what's coming through that screen to him. But generally, I like him as a person. And I want to believe him, but not ultimately. Not ultimately, right? Your college professor, geologists, geneticists, therapists, parenting gurus, scientists, doctors, seminary professors, all of that is to be relativized by the truth of Scripture. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, surely there is no truth in them. Amen? Hmm. Now, by the way, genetics do show that the Bible is true, and so does geology, and so does every true science. But the gurus and the priestesses and priests of the religion of scientism and Darwinianism, and other satanic doctrines, they're not going to be honest with the truth, right? They're going to twist the evidence. So I'm sure you know that. No, but pastor, okay, so I'm with you, I'm with you. All of the scriptures for all of my life, and certainly for all of Christ church, sure, we're there, we're there. But what about all of Acadiana? You can't expect them to believe the Bibles. Uh, they're not even Christians, Right? You ever thought that? I've thought it. I've wrestled with that. You know, do I approach my non-Christian friends? If I had some, um, do I approach them with the Bible? Right? Do I approach my neighbors with the Bible when my when my neighbor tells me that his fourteen-year-old uh, is about to have a kid? What truth do I have for him? What help do I have for him? Is it Doctor Spock, Doctor Phil, or Jesus? Well, you know me, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher, and I do believe we are called in those moments to speak as the oracles of Christ. What does he say? If anyone speaks, let them speak as the oracles of Christ. That is another way of saying the echo or the mouthpiece of Christ. That means you speak the Bible, because that's Christ. You speak the Bible to your neighbors, to everyone, and it is for them. King Jesus is over them, I trust you. He's over them. They may not acknowledge it, but he is over them. Listen to verse 15 in our text. The sacred writings, that's the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's your proof text. There it is in the grammar. This is not Brandon or theological deduction. I have not, um, I have done no calculus here. It is in the grammar. You cannot be saved without the Bible, without the Word of God. So is the Bible for the world? Absolutely. Absolutely. It can make them wise for salvation. Wouldn't you want to give that to your neighbors? Wouldn't you want to give that to your nation, to your friends? Yes, of course. It's the law especially that they need. You say, but how can you expect non-Christians to obey the law? Well, I don't expect them to obey it. I expect them to repent. But what produces that repentance? What leads them to Christ? The law leads men to Christ. It is a tutor which leads them to Christ to show their need for Christ, right? 
law for the unbelieving world is essential. Amen? Yes? 1 Timothy 1.9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. It could not be more clear. This, of course, is specifically, I think, referring to the civil use of the law, which means that the law of God should be over a civil society, should be over its laws. Criminals should be executed because King Jesus says so, starting in Genesis 9 and in various other places. This text right here makes that absolutely, unequivocally certain. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. That's Christians. That's the righteous. But for the lawless and disobedient. I mean, who here needs the sheriff to tell them, hey guys, you got to quit with the murdering. I don't need that. I don't even need a sheriff. I could probably live this whole life without a sheriff. I'm not going to murder anyone, right? <laughs> I don't need that. The bad guys need that, right? For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, etc. You see, all of the scriptures for all of your individual life, your family life, your church life, and for all the world, including all the non-Christians. Do you want them to have what is necessary for salvation? Obviously, the scriptures make men wise unto salvation. That's what he's telling Timothy. Do you want murderers to be restrained? Then they need the law of God. Not some man-made, agreed-upon rules. Right? No, the law of God. Right? And Paul, of course, is here revealing or speaking of what is revealed in Scripture, not what is revealed in nature, although there's no dichotomy there, but what is revealed in Scripture is for all the world. This is why our civil leaders, I don't know if they still do this, I suppose they do, but when they take their office and they swear their covenantal oaths to serve their community, they put their hand on the law of God. And they make their vows on that, which is symbolically stating that they are placing on themselves a maledictory oath that God will enforce. You can see how, you know, how terrible it is for many of them. They're in trouble. They're in big trouble. And of course, they're our leaders, so we're in trouble. So despise the shame, right? Despise the shame, you know? You don't have to be respectable and sophisticated. You don't have to shine. You tell your neighbors the truth of God's word because you know it is the only way they're going to be saved and the only way this world is going to be fixed. Amen. Let's look even closer at the text. It says all scripture is profitable. See that right there? Now, as a caveat, not all scripture is as palatable as ice cream. Okay? Some of it is like Brussels sprouts. Right, And I've told this story a million times, but when Jude was little, he did not eat red things and green things. So a good mama mixes that up in the food that he will eat. Right? And he didn't know that he got all those red, green, red and green things in him. <laughs> because not everything is tasty, not everything is as palatable. That means, that means a, a wise pastor 
is going to preach the whole counsel of God, but he's going to try to be wise about it. But not everything in Scripture is easy to listen to and tasty. But a wise pastor is going to give them their, their vegetables, right? And wise congregants are going to come to the class where the vegetables are served. A wise congregant is going to be open ears. They're going to be ready and waiting for the Lord to lead them and guide them through the teaching of his word through those he has called He has called for them personally. And if they do not, they will suffer the price for it. It will be bad for their lives. It really will. <clears throat> Parents that raise their children on... Uh, macaroni, and nuggets exclusively, no offense, I know that's almost all of us, but parents that raise obese children are bad parents, right? Pastors that raise obese congregants who do not want their vegetables and who only want certain things and demand it. And if you don't give it to them, they're going to cause trouble for you. That is not a good pastor. They need pastors with backbones to preach the whole counsel of God. They need pastors who will preach to them, not not over their head and not to the bad guys over there, right? And not to the big issues of the day, even if they they have no relevance to the congregation, but to preach to the people, so that they might get their, their Brussels sprouts and their asparagus so that they can grow up mature, healthy, well-nourished, fit Christians. This is the key. And that is not something that is done instantaneously. That is something that is done plotting one sermon, one class, one lecture, one personal conversation at a time, line upon line, precept upon precept, over an extended period of time, giving them milk for a while, then hopefully you can give them some meat. Oh, they weren't ready for that meat. Okay, back to milk, right? You, you want it to, it, it's no good if you stick meat in their mouth and they just spit it out. That's no good. They're not getting nourished that way. They might spit that meat right at you, but you're, but you're a pastor. You're a pastor. And so you get smart and you try to work to give them that meat over a period of time, like a good parent would do, Right? Like a good parent would do. So all of scripture is profitable, but it's not all ice cream, of course, and it's not all as palatable, and some of it is milk and some of it is meat, so it has to be doled out strategically, carefully. And it certainly doesn't help the pastor out if big brother and big sister tell little brother and little sister there's red things and green things in that. Okay, it makes things hard for pastor, all right? So chill. All right. Therefore, pastors should teach so as to lead people in a direction of maturity. They should counsel. They should speak. They should live to lead people in a direction of maturity from milk to meat. Pastors are leading people. So you're saying that you have an agenda. No, it's a calling. It's a calling. And the weapon is the word of God. Right? So you're saying you're manipulating us. No, I'm leading through teaching the word of God. There's a direction to it. There's a trajectory to it. If there's no trajectory to it, then you're doing it wrong. History isn't cyclical. It's linear. 
There should be progress. There should be growth. Jesus is not satisfied with the status quo. There should be a pushing. There should be an advancing. It should feel sometimes like pastor's meddling, that he's out of his jurisdiction. No, he's hurting, right? He's hurting. Now, let's move on. All scripture can reprove and correct. That's right. What is Matthew? I think it's 519 or is it 719? Kevin, you freezing up there? (laughs) He's got the hoodie on. (laughs) Look, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, this is Jesus in chapter 5, referring to the Old Testament, whoever, that's teachers and preachers, relaxes one, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Could you imagine a pastor or a deacon, or a Sunday school teacher, teaching people to relax commandments? Clearly, they exist. They'll go to heaven, but least in the kingdom of heaven. They're not being a faithful pastor. But whoever does them, that's essential, and teaches them, even the least of the Old Testament commandments, and the New Testament cans, obviously, but that's not our hang-up these days, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's every pastor's marching orders. Very clear. Especially, you know, teaching pastors who are teaching the Bible. When we speak, we must speak as the oracles of Christ. Not as the oracles of any experts in our world. It saddens me when I see people in Christchurch get so giddy over the, the latest Ben Shapiro book. He doesn't even believe Jesus is the Messiah. How right can he be? I mean, I'm sure he's got some things right. He talks very quickly, right? <laughs> but, and, and read the book, fine, whatever, you know? I'd rather you read that than, you know, the Marquis de Sade or, you know, some other degenerate. But, but seriously... Why are you so stoked about Ben Shapiro's latest and you won't even come to Sunday school? You won't go to Bible study. You don't study the Bible yourself. You go to the bathroom three times during the sermon. But the latest Ben Shapiro book. You are not getting milk or meat. You are killing yourself and your family. And everyone who is covenantally connected with you is receiving the negative sanctions of that. There must be repentance here. Put Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, uh, whatever liberal uh, counterparts of those people are. It's not really an issue in our church, I don't think. Jordan, if you, if you got the latest uh, um, MSNBC superstar book. Yeah, get rid of that junk. <laughs> get rid of that junk. All of Scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction, reproof. Those books are teaching. They're correcting. They're reproofing. It's inevitable. Every teaching does that. But only the Scriptures are profitable for it. Amen? Amen. And last one. Every scripture, all scripture is profitable to equip you for every good work. You mean spiritual works? No, every good work. Not just spiritual things, every good work. What do you need to be a good welder? 
you need first the Bible. The Bible is more profitable for you than trade school. The Bible is more profitable for you. And in fact, if you go to trade school and you don't have the Bible, your works will be burnt up in the judgment. You need the Bible. That is how you can weld and create with your life gold, silver, and precious stones. You've got to have everything laid on the foundation of the Bible. It is profitable for every good work. Every good work. All of them. All of life. All week long. <clears throat> now, the world hates God and hates the Bible, and so they're trying to replace the Bible with experts. Right? They don't call, obviously, they're not going to call them prophets of Baal, okay? They call them accredited experts, certified, credentialed. In some cases, they have robes or scrubs, right? Do college professors still wear robes? I mean, on graduation day, they still, they still have those things. Um, but uh, the Bible is the only thing that is truly and completely and ultimately profitable for all the good works that you are ordained to do in this life. And anything that is not done upon the foundation of the Bible is doomed to decay. All right. So, just to summarize, may we be people of the book that truly do understand what it means, all of Christ and all of life. All of the Bible for all of the universe. Amen? To the word and to the testimony. If they speak not according to thy word, Ben Shapiro, there is no light in them. Proof text. Couldn't be clearer. We must, we must turn to the scriptures. We must repent of our amazingly ignorant understanding of the Bible so that we can truly grow and be equipped for every good work and be corrected and rebuked, rebuked and reproved, et cetera, et cetera. Amen? All right, y'all have a great Sunday. Yes, sir? Oh, I know, yeah. <laughs>